This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. So there's a lot of hope for the summer. That has been a real talking point of every single politician and health official. One of those things that acts as an incentive that's a lot different than Vaximillions or a free beer in New Jersey, which they choose to use as incentives to go and get vaccinated. What we have is the hope that the summer will be better. Quebec Premier Francois Legault had a lot of things to say about how that province would open up and what ways that they could see some changes. Now, it's going to take two shots, both shots of a vaccine in 75% of their population to do it, but it will make a major difference in all of this. When it comes to Europe, they had ambassadors from the 27 European Union countries that gave a thumbs up to a European Commission proposal to loosen the criteria that would determine safe countries and let in fully vaccinated tourists from elsewhere. And they're expected to put together a new list this week or next week. And as far as how that would work, well, they're still kind of working out all of those details. We've seen some intermingling so far. Portugal had a travel ban on British tourists, and they lifted that on Monday. So right now, people from only seven countries, Australia's in there. Israel's in there, Singapore is in there, and they are very high on having vaccinated a lot of their citizens, can enter the EU on a holiday, and that's regardless of whether they've been vaccinated. But how about the rest of the world? Well, that's still taking shape. And with that will come the idea of a vaccine passport. And we're lucky enough to have with us right now, Dr. Brian Thomas, Senior Research Associate and Adjunct Professor at the University of Ottawa and the Center for Health Law, Policy and Ethics to talk about this. Dr. Thomas, thanks for being here. How is Wednesday going? Uh, It's going great, thanks. Uh, Pleasure to be here with you. When we talk about vaccine passports, at one point it was, well, do you think we'll have some? Do you think it'll be a requirement where does that conversation sit now? Right. Well, it looks it's looking increasingly as though in the domain of international travel, we'll have really no choice, I think, but to implement some form of vaccine passport because, um, of course, Canadians have a charter right to mobility, and so they have a right to leave the country. And if every other country in the world is requiring a vaccine passport for entry, then it'll sort of behoove our government to uh, to provide passports to us. So that's that I think is the, the horse is sort of out of the gate on uh, out of the gate on that question. And then the so the further question is whether we'll be using vaccination passports domestically for things like entry to movie theaters or concerts or restaurants or, or even workplaces. Um, and that I think is more up in the air. I think there's more um, skepticism among Canadians and maybe among lawmakers around that question. But um, you know, we could talk about that if you like. But so that's what sure. play. Okay, well, why don't we try and get our heads around what a vaccine passport would even be or what it would contain? What do you think it has to have in it? Sure, so what it has to have, I think, is um, some record of, you know, that someone has been, has received both doses of the vaccine, so that someone is fully vaccinated. 
Uh, and it'll have to have some method of authentication. So it, it, there's been talk of perhaps a QR code that it could be scanned by a cell phone or by some scanning device. Uh, so that's to achieve kind of security for it. Um, and then you'd have to have some accompanying documentation, right? So the idea would be that I would have either a physical badge, like a, just a, a piece of paper in my in my wallet with the, with a QR code on it or else an app that I could bring up my phone to flash the QR code. And then I would show along with that, I'd show my photo ID, right? So my driver's license and, and perhaps we'd have to make accommodations for people who don't have cell phones or people who don't have, uh, who don't have photo ID and that sort of thing. But those are kind of the minor details, but those are the essential elements of it, right? Okay. And you could, so and in theory, you could, you could do more things. You could track it. I mean, this could be civil libertarians worry about this becoming a more expansive method of tracking people's geolocation and so on. But I don't think that's, a, to my mind, that's not an essential feature of a, um, of a vaccination passport. How do we address that kind of a concern? Is it necessary to do it, or is it just, hey, this is what it is. If you want to feel one way about it, go ahead. If you want to feel another way about it, well, go ahead with that, too. Uh, sorry, you mean to address the concern about uh, uh, surveillance through these, or what did you have in mind? Yeah, that, because that certainly will be there. Yeah, so uh, in the papers we've written on this topic, we've suggested that government really should play a role in regulating where these can be, uh, where vaccine passports can be required. So there, it may be that for certain that we want to say, you know, that certain essential services cannot vet people on the basis or cannot gate people on the basis of vaccine passports. So maybe some of the things that, that are currently deemed essential services, like grocery stores and pharmacies, it may be that we want to not allow them to be checking passports at the door, or that we at least want to have some accommodation in place so that people who don't have, who haven't been vaccinated can, can get through. Um, so that's that concern. And then the government could also regulate the amount of information that's gathered through vaccine passports. And, um, and I think part of the issue here is that our government's reluctance to kind of embrace this technology is may just leave the door open to private sector solutions that will not actually, where no one will have thought about the, you know, the the risk of discrimination or the other sort of charter of rights implications of this technology, right? So there's, there's an advantage to having government get ahead of this and, and think through these issues. We're talking with Dr. Brian Thomas, Senior Research Associate and Adjunct Professor at the University of Ottawa in the Center for Health, Law, Policy and Ethics. And we are talking about vaccine passports. And you just said it. The government has hinted at things, talking about things. When is it time for the government, if these things are going to work, to figure out how these things are going to be, if they're going to handle it? Yeah, when is it, well, the time is past now. I mean, we're, I think we'll be playing catch up on this. Um, and, uh, because there are obviously the, there are sort of background issues here where our, you know, if, if we wanted to have a kind of national system for this, if we wanted to have a seamless uh, system across provinces and so on, that is going to, there's going to be a kind of technological aspect to that that will require a lot of um, work on the back end. And we're not, we're just not ahead of it. So, um, so that you know, the time to do this was months ago, and uh, and hopefully we can sort of rush to catch up with other countries on this. What if? And here's a big what if. What if we don't catch up? What if all of a sudden we're in a position where we want to see things open? And you mentioned this could happen even domestically, where you want to go to a movie or you want to go to a concert or a sporting event, and you want to make sure that everybody's as safe as possible. And you think, oh, it'd be nice to have a vaccine passport. Where do you think we'd be if we were in that position? Uh, well, where we may be is that we'll have 
longer. I mean, this is sort of like our problem with our vaccine rollout that we're way behind other countries, right? So we may just be in a situation of just having much longer lockdown than we would had we really gotten ahead of the idea of vaccine passports. Uh, so that's one possibility. The other possibility is that, as I say, that that some private sector solutions will creep up, and you know, it could. You know, I live in Ontario, and I've I've been vaccinated once, and you get a piece of paper. When the, you know, upon that time, when I get a second vaccination, I'll get a second piece of paper, and maybe that we'll see private sector solutions that are just using those pieces of paper as a kind of uh, you know, ersatz um, vaccination passport, and then we'll, of course, we'll have the concern of, of because those aren't they don't have the security measures that I mentioned earlier that we want something that can be scannable and checked against official records, but we may have this kind of sloppy, improvised system of vaccine passports, which you know raises problems all its own. Wow, and that's that's probably not where we want to be, right? No, that's not where we want to be. So that's that's kind of been the message we've had is that we need, you know, we certainly do need to talk about this. We need to think about the human rights implications of these things, the equity implications of it. But we we don't have forever to talk about this because it's there's going to be mounting pressure to get this get this thing moving. You know, as, as we looking over at other countries and we're seeing that they're opening up. You know, Israel is now opened up expansively because of their their sort of aggressive approach to vaccine passports and. Canadians are going to get Canadians. I think will get tired of waiting on this, and so it's important that government kind of you know we, we have to do it right, but we have to do it quickly as well. And like you said, there would be a difference between the government handling it and this being given to the private sector. That would you see that as a, a drastic difference? Uh, yeah, it is a drastic. It will be a drastic difference. I think. I mean, for one thing, the some of the um, some of the human rights protections that uh, that we enjoy relative to government, we don't enjoy relative to private sector. Uh, you know, there's not the same onus on the private sector to respect people's freedom of religion or to, you know, that we want you know we want this to be done in a thoughtful way that complies with charter values. I think, and and the best way to ensure that is through government and not through a kind of uh, improvised scheme that's imposed by the private sector, right? Or that that could be you know because you'll you'll have variation from one workplace to another and so on. We want this to be consistent and, and done in a kind of principled manner, which it will not be if it's done in a kind of Wild West approach that's undertaken by the private sector. Dr. Thomas, you've laid this out beautifully. Is there anything we're missing in the conversation, do you think? Um, something I like to remind people of is that the, I mean, there are obvious equity concerns with this. You know, there's the fact that insofar as people haven't had access to vaccines and it is unfair to sort of ramify the consequences of that by also, by then gating access to everything. But, um, but by the same token, we are already living under lockdown, which has had grave effects on people's, you know, ability to earn a living and so on. So I just encourage people to think about vaccine passports in that kind of, within that framework of trade-off. You know, this is, we're talking about alleviating some of the uh, the pressures of lockdown in order to do this. And, and that's there's obviously great benefits to that. So that's the way that's the kind of framing or balancing outlook I take on this. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. That's Dr. Have Brian Thomas, Senior Research Associate and Adjunct Professor, University of Ottawa Center for Health, Law, Policy and Ethics. And some amazing points. One, if we're going to have vaccine passports, the importance of this being done by government, even though people are not necessarily the most trusting of government, what if you did put it in the hand of private companies? We have an opportunity right now to talk about something that takes us to a once upon a time story. Once upon a time, there were two friends who were, I don't know, I think we were eight years old. We were eight years old or seven years old, and we both owned Intellivisions. 
Remember those things? Video game system, you had an Atari or an Intellivision or a ColecoVision. And we sat down on a curb at school because both of us were playing Intellivision hockey. And you had to have two players to play that. And it wasn't overly fun if you only had one player. And one of us, I don't remember which one it was. I'm not the smarter one, so it was probably the other guy, said, you know what would be cool? If I could turn on my TV and you could see my game and I could see your game, we could play against each other from our living rooms. Now, I don't know whether that guy went on to invent the Internet. I, I don't think so. I think the Internet was uh, in full force to, thanks to the U.S. military by that point. But it was a few years before the Internet, and that was an idea. And you would say, that would never happen. How do I play my game on your TV and you play it on my TV? Never happen. Well, it happens. And it happens every day and every minute of every day. And now we're hitting whole new appreciation for being able to compete against somebody in an electronic form. Video games, we've got professional video game players. You know Zach Hyman of the Maple Leafs? He's kind of like an agent for video game players where he employs them. And they become good, and then he gets a cut of their earnings. We're talking big stuff. And when you have big stuff, you have big interest. You also have the ability to look at this how you would have looked at the Preakness on the weekend or the Kentucky Derby and say, I'd like to put down a wager that that is going to happen. Joining us right now is someone who can help us out in this conversation. Because he is the new CEO of Real Luck and can tell us all about luckbox.com. Please welcome Thomas Rosander to London Live. Thomas, how are things? Hi, it's uh, awesome. Uh, great to be here. Now, where are you right now? Because I know you're not in Canada. What country are you in? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually on a, on a small rock in the middle of the Mediterranean called Malta. <laughs> Uh, so quite far away from, from from you guys, I guess. And how are things in Malta right now in a pandemic? It's it's uh, it's pretty good actually. We pretty much uh, it's it's kind of gone already, and like maybe one occasional case uh, pops up a week, but it it uh, it's really good here actually. It's been good to be here throughout the epidemic, I would say. Small rock, middle of the Mediterranean. It sounds beautiful, and it certainly sounds ideal. Thomas, let's talk a little bit about the popularity of esports and where esports betting comes in. Why don't we talk about the popularity of esports? Is there a way to sum up how big this has become? Um, absolutely, and like uh, it's big. It's it's really really big, and uh, if you look at the of course, all this is, is driven by, by the, the video game publishers or, or game makers uh, because they see that uh, they can create more attention to the games and they can prolong the life of these games. So if, if, if we look at some, some stats, uh, you know, gaming is, is already a triple-digit billion-dollar industry, and that, that's what you know, esports is tapping into. And... Uh, Esports in itself is already a multi-billion-dollar business, and uh, I think well, like one example that I usually use is that it, right before the pandemic uh, in 19, the 
Super Bowl had 98 million viewers. The League of Legends World Championship final had 137 million viewers, and that is excluding China. So it kind of, it kind of sets the barrier for people to realize that traditional sports is, has already been passed. So, yeah, we think about the Super Bowl being that, that big event that the world stops to watch. Sure, it may be, but you're telling us that League of Legends, which is a video game, and their world championship had the Super Bowl, and then it almost boils down to another half in terms of audience? Yeah. yeah that's, that's big. Yeah. But Yeah, yeah, it's, it's big. It's, it's much, much bigger than uh, most people realize. And it makes sense, you know, because one-third of the people in the world, which is, you know, 2.7 billion uh, people or something like that, play video games. So when you consider that, it's not so strange that it's becoming absolutely massive. And uh, the thing here, which, which, you know, I think is super exciting, is that it's just the beginning still. It's just yeah. gonna, it's just gonna grow and grow. Thomas Rosander joining us, the new CEO of Real Luck, and we're talking about Luckbox.com and really what is happening in esports. So you mentioned we're talking triple-digit billion-dollar industry that is only scratching the surface, that is only growing. We have things like Twitch, which are dedicated to largely video game playing, and people will watch, and this is certainly something that has proven to have some staying power. So let's talk a little bit about where betting on esports comes in how does that work so uh esports like when you have something this massive in movement and you have a lot of money coming into it uh everybody's trying to figure out how you can earn money on this thing and uh gambling uh, if we call it that has been uh, a proven way to monetize things for for a very very long time and it's the same here so uh, esports betting, which, you know, is gambling, and uh, that is the best way to monetize this whole esports uh, boom that, that is going on. So when we're talking about Luckbox, which is part of Real Luck, which you are running, is that a site that is going to host games, or is that a site that puts together the opportunity to bet on esports? Yeah, so we, we are an eSports betting site. Uh, so we provide odds and matches and live streams and data around uh, all the different games and, and matches that you, that you can bet on. And people come to us to look, look at the, the live streams or occasionally place a bet. Um, that, that's basically what we do. We're live in, in over 80 countries and uh, multiple languages and uh, it's, it's really exciting. We're talking with Thomas Rosander, who is the new CEO of Real Luck, and we're looking at luckbox.com and the ability to bet on eSports. Now, we can think about sports books that will be put together and all of the information that goes in to create those odds, and that usually is for, say, in sports, a finite league. The NFL has 32 teams. The NBA has 30. NHL has 31. So we're talking about a finite number of teams and you can look at data. 
if you look at the world of esports, how do you even begin to put together odds on just how many people are out there? Yeah, I, we have one huge advantage over traditional sports, and that is, like traditional sports, you have people running on a field or, you know, doing something in real life. Here, the actual sport is digitalized from the beginning. It's, it's a bunch of pixels on a screen, essentially, <laughs> which means also that all of that uh, is data that can be measured and can be, you can process stuff on it. So the games are built for this pretty much from the beginning, if you look at it that way. And uh, the, the game publishers themselves are maybe not so much in the past, but now they're definitely having this in mind when they're actually designing the games and, and building them, that there has to be good data feeds and, uh, and so on. So Really? So they will put that in there so that the information has the ability to go somewhere in order to help decide who is good and who isn't? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the games, they spit out a lot of data, and then there are aggregators who pick up this data, or sometimes there's, as, just as in regular sports, there's uh, uh, data rights and so on. And uh, one of the problems that the business is facing now is that since exactly your point, that it's so big and there's so many stuff, so much stuff going on, uh, there is no, not one single source that has all the data. So we, as an as a esports betting site, we have to uh, connect with multiple data providers and odds, fee, uh, odds providers to, to be able to deliver the best service to, to our players. And from there, well, I mean, the, the world's your oyster in terms of, of what you can do. What do you find is becoming most popular in terms of, in terms of wagering on esports? Um, the, the, the biggest uh, or, or the most popular game right now for us and basically for the whole business, and I'm sure, I know it's the most popular in Canada right now as well, is Counter-Strike Strike, CS, uh, CSGO, we call it, Global Offensive. And uh, for the ones who, are, who play video games, they know Counter-Strike has been along for a long time, but uh, uh, this is the most popular game right now. Uh, we have the League of Legends, uh, really old game as well uh, and uh, we have Dota 2 which is, which is not a game and these are the big three uh, so to speak and they have been around for a long time and they have they're dominating the space and it's a lot of game publishers who's trying to get in there because obviously this is fantastic it's great when you get this attention to a game and it prolongs its lifetime you know, much, much longer than it otherwise would have. And uh, so, so essentially, it's the, it's the video game industry that they really love this. Uh, so you bet that they're, all the big game publishers, they're thinking about what's going to be the next big competitive game, and all of them are trying to, to create that one. Isn't that wild? Well, I mean, we've got a, a great gaming industry here in London, Ontario, where we have game manufacturers who are no doubt on that list trying to make something that they feel will become the next great competitive game because there are people right now, Thomas, who, who do this for a living, right, and do very well at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we really oh, yeah, appreciate you. Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say that uh, 
famous team from uh, from Canada is uh, Luminosity Gaming, and they they they're probably doing revenues above a million or something. Really? Well, and like you say, just scratching the surface. Thomas, we really appreciate your time. Enjoy being on that beautiful rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. Please keep safe, and thanks for the education today on eSports betting. No worries. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's Thomas Rosander, who is the new CEO of Real Luck and runs luckbox.com. So eSports betting and how big that is becoming. And as Thomas says, you have companies that are essentially looking and saying, we want to have this kind of a game, and then we want to be able to provide the information so that that can channel back in and and it can become part of an eSports betting site. We had a significant announcement today from the Ministry of Health, and that was that because we've seen a reduction in hospitalizations for COVID-19, we will have some elective surgeries resume. We know that there's a major backlog, so that's a positive announcement. If you look to our neighbors in Quebec, starting next week, they are going to allow outdoor dining. So that's a positive step. We are beginning to hear more and more about the recovery from COVID-19, which is not going to be easy. We will have lost, and we have lost, businesses. And some businesses are going to take an awful long time to get back to where they wanted to be or, or where they were after having made it through this. This is not going to be an easy recovery, but we always like it when the conversation is happening about things. What were we mentioning before? Vaccine passports, is the federal government even talking about those still? We heard from someone who said they need to be, but we don't hear a lot about it. We had some conversation yesterday at City Hall about some pretty significant things, and that is five particular projects that we'll get funding and we'll be able to hopefully assist in job creation and help out London businesses. So let's get to this conversation. Joining us right now is Ward 9 Councillor Anna Hopkins. Councillor Hopkins, thanks for taking some time for us. Yeah, thank you for asking. Everybody met last night, Strategic Priorities and Policy Committee, but it was it was all of council. And at the end of the night, we saw a unanimous vote, which doesn't always happen. Can you take us through what stood out to you last night? Well, I, you know, what stood out, you're right, we, it was unanimous. Uh, I, I think it's very important uh, that as a council we come together to support the community. And for me, that was a positive step last night. Uh, there was a unanimous support, not only for the business cases, there are still a number of questions remaining, but really uh, supporting not only our downtown core, but uh, businesses throughout uh, out the community. I was um, in, in Lambeth uh, last weekend and, and looking at the uh, neighborhood businesses, and some communities do not have some... DIAs where, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, left more vulnerable uh, trying to make ends meet. And, and it's good to have uh, information 
to provide to the community what the city is doing and working with stakeholders in the community. To me, that stood out last night. It was a, it's a collaboration effort, and, and it's positive. You made some positive comments um, leading into this conversation, and we need to hear and do more as we look at recovery. If we're going to kind of zero in on some of the things that the city is going to have the ability to do, we also have to zero in on the fact that nothing is free. We Mm. know that there's $10 million for these projects. Where does that come from? Well, this came from the economic um, fund that money is put aside for economic recovery. So, um, you know, that money is there. But Councillor Helmer made a really good point when we talked about the security and the safety and and uh, creating places for our vulnerable that we need provincial and federal funding. I represent the City of London at the AMO board. I felt like he was talking directly at me because we have been advocating as chair of the Large Urban Caucus to the provincial government that uh, uh, they have provided one-time funding, but to continue uh, to to help the, the most vulnerable, we need not just one-time funding, but we need more funding at, to build on the positive things that we've done, but we have to keep it going, and we do need that shift in, in perception and understanding uh, 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 of where we put people and the vulnerable. And you're right, it is all about money in the end. We are talking, sorry, we're talking with Ward 9 Councillor Anna Hopkins. Councillor Hopkins, can you take us through, we heard on Monday from London Mayor Ed Holder about the, the projects, but typically what are we looking at in terms of these five projects? So there were five, there's five business cases, that, and this came from the London Community Recovery Network, and this came out of the mayor's, um, um, I, I guess, advocating with the community when COVID hit uh, over a year ago, where, um, you know, where is the need, uh, where should, uh, where should the support to go to in the London community Recovery Network uh, came came out of a number of consultations with the community, and the community came up with ideas. They were vetted through staff, and then they came to us, and they have been coming to us uh, uh, throughout the past number of months. But last uh, last night we had the five business cases, and and it, it, it's really uh, coming out of the need that that the community says they 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 see there, and it's it's. Um, those partnerships that we're building with the stakeholders in the community to to bring forward uh, a number of these business cases. So uh, they are, uh, you know, uh, there's five of them, the citywide support local promotional campaign, the economic work and training platforms, the good foods projects, investments and ventures with innovative solutions, and then, of course, the pandemic recovery resources and training to enhance employment for Londoners. So this is where we put money into, that we as a city supporting these initiatives along with the stakeholders, there will be, and I think this is really important, so to understand is these business cases are, right now we're taking a chance. And and we, I, I feel very strongly that we need to take that chance, that we have to be listening to the community, taking that chance, working with the community, and then we should be developing 
and looking at what have we learned, has it been successful, and building uh, from that. We're talking with Ward 9 Counselor Anna Hopkins. It's interesting to hear you say that you're taking a, a chance. Do you think this is something, when we look back over the pandemic, that, that maybe is inspired by that, where, hey, we, we've got to do something, we've got to look at these proposals, and, and if this can help either create jobs or can help businesses in, say, the tourism industry, that mm. let's just try it? Would if the, if the pandemic hadn't happened, could we be having the same conversation? Would, would there be the same kind of push to be able to take a chance? I think we were starting to have those conversations uh, prior to the pandemic. It wasn't an ideal situation. We had many challenges uh, leading into the pandemic. That pandemic has highlighted these, and, and we need to, uh, to do something. Uh, we need to work together, and we need to support one another. I am really... Um, um, you know, as the pandemic wears on, we are becoming less, I think, tolerable. But this is the time where we need to really come together and support and become positive and, and, and change our, our way. And that the pandemic has highlighted the problems that were already there. So, Councillor Hopkins, as far as timeline goes for things like this, because we've got the Good Foods Project, which will be, in a way, competition for things like Skip the Dish. Um, We have, as we mentioned, a a campaign for Tourism London that will be helping to encourage people to make use of what we have here in London when it comes to events or when it comes to shopping or things like that. Uh, we've heard Devin Peacock already talk about what Tech Alliance is doing for entrepreneurs. Uh, mm. There's a recycling program as well. And there's also some training in the employment sector. And the hope is that we will be able to get more people into the job market for all of that. When we look at a timeline for all of these projects that got that green light, what's next? Well, we we have to implement them, and we need Londoners' support as well. Uh, I just want to get back to your comment about the, the competition part of things. And one of the, um, you know, we we also uh, last night talked, uh, we got a report on the core area initiatives from the ambassador program, and we have a number of things going on in the downtown core that already started prior to the pandemic. But, but what's really important is that we don't duplicate things, that we understand, um, uh, the, uh, take advantage of the opportunities. And, and competition can be a good thing. It can make us better. We are a larger, we're a growing city. Yeah, population's over four, 400,000, uh, and growing. Uh, there is room and, 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 and there is a need, uh, to do things maybe a little bit differently. This is what this is. It's starting. It's seeing where we go. It's re- getting the matrix and it's reporting back to us at council and, and, and the most important thing is that uh, there is support uh, uh, for things to be successful. We need Londoners uh, a- as well, supporting our local businesses. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see where we go with this. But uh, I think it is a positive step in the right direction. Councillor Hopkins, thanks so much for the conversation today. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. That is Ward 9 Councillor 
Anna Hopkins. So five projects, and the idea is, okay, we've got recovery, because this falls to all of us, and Councillor Hopkins pointed that out. This falls to all of us, because sometimes it's too easy to log on to a certain site and say, I'd like something to arrive in a day. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 